Traduction. Translation. Traduction. Translator's note. I cannot see the flower. The flower is fragrant. The fragrance is in full bloom. I dig a grave in it but I cannot see the grave either. I enter the grave I cannot see and sit there. I lie down. I can smell the flower again. I still cannot see the flower. The fragrance is in full bloom. I forget about it and dig a grave. I still cannot see the grave. I forget about the flower and go into the grave I cannot see. Ah, uh, I can smell the flower again. The flower I cannot see. This flower I cannot see. Welcome to Translator's Note. I'm Abby Ryderhuth. And I'm Julia Conrad. What you just heard was Cliff by Isong, translated from Korean by Jack Jung. It's part of Isong's selected works, which was edited by Don Miche and came out in 2020 from Wave. For this episode, we're talking about how translations get published. Jack joins us to talk about his work, and so does fellow Korean translator Lizzie Bueller, whose translation of The Disaster Tourist by Yoon Cohen came out from Counterpoint also in 2020. Okay, so maybe this is corny, but when I hear the line, the flower <laughs> I cannot see, I think of translation because ah. there's this thing you can't see the original of necessarily, but you're using other senses to appreciate it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, anyway, so I think it's cool to be looking at these two books together because one is avant-garde poetry from the 1930s and one is a contemporary literary thriller. So really a range of genres, periods, and styles. Mm -hmm. And then later in the episode, I'll talk to Kendall Story, an editor at Catapult Books and before that Archipelago Books, and her process editing the recent National Book Award for translation finalist, High as the Waters Rise. Cool. So in the last episode, we talked about translation in the classroom and the opportunities for play and creativity that can come up there. And actually, I think this segues really well into talking about the editing process and publication, because in some ways, translation editors do very similar work as students in a workshop. Right. But on the other hand, while wildness and experimentation can be fostered in a classroom, it's sometimes more complicated to publish in the slightly conservative Anglophone publishing culture where translation can be seen as risky or niche, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. Translation is still a very tiny part of Anglophone publishing, but it's growing. And, you know, even within that, there are certain languages or countries whose literatures have historically gotten a lot of attention or very little attention or which start getting more attention or being brought into English more frequently. Yeah, so we're focusing on two books translated from Korean in part because there's been a lot of exciting work coming out recently from Korean and also a lot of interesting conversation mm -hmm. going back to Deborah Smith's approach to translating The Vegetarian in 2007, for example. Yeah. Um, translation also can be a window into broader questions about the relationships between countries and cultures. And in this case, the U.S. and Korea um, makes me think of Don Miche's poetry collection DMZ Colony, which addresses U.S. neocolonialism and translation, and recently won the 2020 National Book Award for Poetry. It's such a good book. Yeah, yeah I love it. 
And it's important, you know, because the U.S. first occupied Korea in 1945 and still has troops there to this day. So, you know, the, these translations and the creative work around them, are, I think, are particularly necessary for Anglophone literature now, and especially for U.S. readers. But also, hopefully, with the wide diversity of Korean translations, writers won't be read as representing an entire nation, mm -hmm. which, um, of course, one writer can't represent an entire nation or culture. Yeah. Um, but this is something that happens particularly to non-Western writers and is a danger of lack of diversity in publishing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thinking about representation, I think Isang's work becomes interesting because it's it's really historical. Um and the poems are pretty short, but they also feel almost like long poems in a way to me. Like not mm -hmm. long on the page, but long when we think about time, because they're poems from the 1930s. But in a way, I wonder if the English versions of them are poems of the 21st century, because that's when Jack made them. Oh, I love that. Um... So Jack talks more about his process later on. And before we jump in, we wanted to play a little bit of the Korean of Cliff to get a better sense of the work and its sound. Cliff, I cannot see the flower. The flower is fragrant. The fragrance is in full bloom. I dig a grave in it, but I cannot see the grave either. I enter the grave, I cannot see I can smell the flower the Isang was born in Korea in 1910. Just right after uh, Korea had been fully annexed by the Japanese Empire. He's educated under the imperialist Japanese schooling system, and after graduating, he becomes an architect. And it seemed like uh, for a while he was sort of a living this well-educated person's life until he started writing and publishing these very strange pieces on the Korean architectural magazine. A few years into this work as an architect, he was diagnosed with the tuberculosis. He quits his job, opens a cafe. And through that cafe, he beats all these other modernist writers who sort of heard about him because of his strange writings in Japanese. He befriends them and convinces them to publish his uh, strange poetry. Um, and then not only anywhere, but on the newspaper at the time, one of the few Korean newspapers, the newspaper readership in Korea at first were like, well, what kind of strange things is this? <laughs> It's uh, called Crow's Eye View, which was a pun, uh, which was actually a visual pun on the Chinese characters of a uh, bird's eye view. And it's written and using languages that were never used for poetry before in Korean. And then people were at first like, okay, whatever this is. And then about around the time fourth and fifth poems come out, which were all these numbers and geographical figures, people were getting angry. Like they were sending threats to the newspaper. They were saying, this is a madman's ravings you're publishing. <laughs> um, it got really emotional. And uh, Isang's friend, who was the arts editor, kept a uh, letter of resignation in his pocket so that um, he, if, if 
push comes to shove, he's like, you, you got to fire me before I stop this series. <laughs> and uh, he uh, would uh, slowly be accepted as the strange guy in our literature for a bit until he suddenly decides to go to Tokyo for still quite unknown reasons. He was arrested by the Japanese police. Um, at the time, Japanese police could uh, easily arrest any Koreans that they found suspicious and hold them in jail for 30 days without trial. So he was arrested, questioned, his tuberculosis worsened during his time in jail. And when he was released, he was released immediately to hospital where he died at the age of 27. And the last thing they say he said was either, I want to smell lemon or I want to eat a slice of melon. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a, it's such a dramatic story you know like as you say he died in 1937 these poems in the collection are mostly from the early 30s or so what does it mean for this work to come out in english now uh i you know at first when i was translating him i that started in like 2011 not 2011 i'm sorry 2008 and um my initial thinking was, oh, you know, this is a great poet uh, who matters in the history of 20th century literature. Um, but the more I learned about what publishing and interests are like, it's hard to get a dead poet from 1930s who is a experimental postmodernist get <laughs> published out <laughs> in English. Uh, and then... Um, it was very. Uh, it was my good fortune that I got to know Don Me through other translators, and then also through her work. And then she was incredibly interested in Isang. Uh, and to me, it was just a personal project. Always, like I, it's someone I want to see in English. Uh, but what I found surprising as time has gone on, as people are right now becoming not only aware of, but many are fighting against the uh, systematic injustices uh, of the world that we live in, of uh, people being treated as second-class citizens because of uh, who they are. And the, these kind of th- themes uh, had never disappeared. We, we just uh, had uh, sort of grown dull to it, and uh, we have been shaken out of it. And um, I think Isang is important in that his uh, strong, fearless language sort of helps us not only kind of share that experience beyond our time and beyond our language, but also to let the poet, you know, shake us out of any stupor we might be in mm. through his uh, visions. Hmm almost oracular vision sites. <laughs> In many ways, the book Lizzie translated, The Disaster Tourist, could not be more different from Isang's selected works. It's a novel, it's pretty recent, it came out in Korea in 2013, and it follows a young woman named Yona who works with a company called Jungle. Jungle sends tourists on sightseeing holidays to places that have recently experienced major disasters, it sends Yona to the fictional country of Mui to organize a new tour package. I asked Lizzie about her experience with the book. 
Well, it was interesting um, to hear what Jack just said about Isang, I guess using his platform as a poet to talk about injustices, because I think that's one of the things that I feel is present in the disaster tourist as well. And in Mui is not a real country, but there's this very uncomfortable relationship between Mui and the Korean tourists who go there because, you know, they go there to delight at this like display of horror and then they can go home and feel excited. And obviously this is much more extreme than what actual tourism is like, but it certainly does bring up questions about ethical tourism as someone coming from a wealthy country going to a less wealthy country. And I also think for Korea, this issue is especially poignant because, you know, in Isang's time, for example, Korea was the sort of second class nation um, that was looked down upon by Japan. And now I see that not repeating itself, obviously, because it's not like Korea has this empire, but there is this sort of relationship that's repeated to some degree, I think. Can we hear a little bit from the book? Yes. So I was thinking I would just read the first couple of pages, if that's all right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Chapter one, jungle. Northbound. High atmospheric pressure, cherry blossoms, news of deaths. Southbound. Dust clouds, strikes, debris. News of the deaths moved fast that week. Word was spreading quickly, but it wouldn't be long before people lost interest. By the time funeral proceedings began, the public would have already forgotten the deceased. A tsunami had hit Jinhe in the province of Kyongnam. Jinhe was where cherry blossoms first bloomed in early spring. When it happened, on an otherwise typical afternoon, life in the city had stopped. In an instant, everything was underwater. Tourists beholding the flowers, pedestrians meandering about, buildings that had been warmed by the sun, and street lamps on the edge of the beach. Yona went down to Jinhe on Friday evening. Jungle, the travel company where she worked as a programming coordinator, didn't currently offer any travel packages to visit the post-tsunami rubble, but it would soon. After arriving, Yona's first tasks were to hand over donations and dispatch volunteers. She spent the weekend giving out money. 10,000 won contributions from nearly a thousand jungle employees, expressing her condolences and assessing the situation. Jungle divided disasters into 33 distinct categories, including volcano eruptions, earthquakes, war, drought, typhoons, and tsunamis, with 152 available packages. For the city of Jinhe, Yona planned to create an itinerary that combined viewing the aftermath of the tsunami with volunteer work. Yona's return to Seoul took longer than the trek down south. As Korea marched into spring, cherry blossoms were blanketing the country. The flowers had already bloomed in Jinhe, and during Yona's weekend away from home, northern blossoms began to bud as well. Once she was back in Seoul, Yona turned on her TV. After the south coast tsunami, the news broadcast not only typical weather forecasts and programs about the flowers' arrival, but also information about where the ocean currents would take the tsunami wreckage now trapped in their waters. The trash consisted of artifacts of daily life stolen by nature, mostly pieces of plastic and forgettable knickknacks not yet decomposed. Soon to be forgotten by their former owners, they were destined to swirl about the sea for decades. The debris flowed south along the currents, bobbing atop ever-moving waves. Something I was thinking about in reading this book and spending time with it is these big questions of responsibility and complicity and awareness What do you see as the responsibility of the translator? I thought it was very important to make Yona 
not be either an overly sympathetic character or an overly hated character. I think this comes across not just in the content of the book, but also the tone of Yoon Cohen's writing. It's a very sort of spare and almost emotionless book. And you never, you know what Yona is doing and you sort of know what she's thinking, but you really never know how she's feeling. But I didn't want to make the sense of remove feel unnatural in English. Um, and this was, this is a challenge in all texts when translating from Korean to English because the structure of the two languages is so different from one another. Um, just to start, Korean is um, subject verb object and, or English is subject verb object and Korean is um, subject object verb. And that's just the beginning um, of the many differences between the two languages. So I wasn't able to always, um, you know, transfer what was said in one sentence from Korean directly to English. So especially with, with dialogue, I would oftentimes try to reimagine a scene as if it had occurred in English um, in the first place. And I would read the scene in Korean and think, if Yona had said this in an English-speaking context as an English speaker, what would she have said to get across the same idea? Um, and I did this not only for Yona, but for the other characters as well. Um, and I think that was what helped me to, to create this character that although she is this sort of distanced figure that English readers don't necessarily fully identify with, um, she does feel very natural and like she exists in the world um, that they're familiar with as English speaking readers. Yona as a character sort of reflects a lot of us in the contemporary world because we all are complicit in systems that benefit us and harm others. Yeah, there's all these questions of, of access and insiderness and outsiderness that feel that do feel really relevant to today. And also I think to, to these larger questions of, of translation too. Jack, I'm wondering too about how do you see your role as a translator in bringing in bringing Isang into English? You know, we talk so much about domestication, foreignization, softening. We talk, think about the expectations of the target audience. And so we're kind of operating also in this sort of nexus of insider, outsider. We're, mm. we're like guides almost in a way. I think so Isang himself, because of how experimental he is in Korean, he, he tends to be seen as an extremely difficult writer to read, uh, even for Koreans and even for myself. And that's why it took so long for me, uh, in a way, to do all the research and to learn to sort of... Uh, so for, in case of Isang, it was like learning uh, yet another language um, to translate. And uh, I, I remember thinking as I translated, English version of Isang is going to be much more accessible <laughs> uh, simply because uh, a lot of um, that uh, almost um, initial experience of uh, finding Isang in a very uh, difficult, almost opaque writer sort of disappears um, because Another kind of characteristic thing about Yi style is that in Korean, he does not use any kind of spacing, tiyasugi, at all, which is sort of a um, kind of rule that 
um, makes a, a legibility uh, in Korean important, but the way he does not do it sort of makes it as if like he's very much um, um, being suppressed and being forced to speak in a very anguished way. If you do that in English, it's uh, it takes way too longer to parse out where the words are. So that was one of the choices I made early on. Where okay, I'll I'll not experiment with the spacing because I think uh, there's this uh, sense of speed of sound that's coming out, and when you don't do that, when you try to do that in English, it slows it down considerably. What I ended up uh, finding. Was that I needed to, to interpret and create a new language for him in English, uh, rather than be as difficult or be as um, obscure, simply because my initial experience with Isang was obscure. What I mean is that mm. the more I studied his language, he became very clear to me, and that. Um, Ultimately, I would be doing more service by uh, seeing and bringing over uh, my interpretation about Isang, and that uh, that was the the best I could do in that sense. <laughs> the fact that both of these books are out right now is, I think, testament to a a growing appetite, if I can say, in mm. in Anglophone literature for Korean literature. Do you, either of you see? A particular challenge in bringing Korean literature to English-speaking audiences. I mean, I think we're blessed in a in a lot of ways because there is institutional support for translating Korean in a way that there isn't for most other languages, even major languages. There are varying levels of excitement from publishers depending on the language of the text that you're translating from, and I think that currently Korean is one of the languages that is the lucky recipient of favorable tides of interest in a way that, you know, some of the languages that have traditionally been translated more like German or Spanish or French are, are not as much right now. Um, so I think that's, that's obviously not a challenge. It's the opposite of a challenge. I mean, for me, not just as a uh, bilingual Korean American, um, it, it is something to think about that America, United States of America as a nation has had so much, um, you know, like it has been involved positively and negatively in many of uh, other countries' businesses. And the, in, the, the role it has had on Korean history is incredible. Um, uh, you, you cannot ignore the occupation, the war, and the current um, situation. So to me, translating certain poets and certain writers um, and then having that those writers confront English readership is very important and uh, Isang is certainly one of them um, but as we perhaps uh, get, gain more interest in more current writers that I think uh, will be become more clearer and I would hope it's not just Korean but in many other countries that uh, America has been uh, whether we like it or not a part of that um, more writers will be able to speak to the writer, readers in uh, English or English language readers so that we are not seen just as kind of um, chess pieces or, you know, the kind of a 
neo-colonial subjects, but um, to be seen as uh, human beings with souls. <laughs> Jack is a poet as well as a translator. That's actually how I know him. We were in poetry workshops together. I asked him and Lizzie how they came to translating in the first place. They both mentioned encountering it as undergrads. For Jack, it was in Jory Graham's poetry workshop. One of the first things she told us is, uh, if you know another language, why don't you translate? Uh, it's one of the best ways to learn uh, writing your own work. And so initially, I thought I was going to translate just as an exercise. And then I found out Isang, and there was something I felt where I, I have to translate this person. And uh, so as I was doing... Uh, my own little studies of Korean literature and especially colonial period from 1930s. Um, those are, that's my gem kind of when it comes to Korean poetry. I was also studying a lot of uh, poetry from English Renaissance. So it, it was kind of like a weird time traveling that was going on in my brain. That's fascinating. How did languages, different languages, different time periods, how did they influence each other? You know, this is like purely my theory. So I don't think it's scientific at all, but there is something about the two periods in colonial poetry in Korea and the early modern um, stuff from the English Renaissance where introduction of all these technologies, all these um, fascinating new ways of thinking along with classical tradition sort of clashing and merging in the prismatic soul of these poets um, sort of uh, really made me I, I don't know, like a, set my brain on fire, kind of, you know, like bringing in all these different terms and ideas and concepts and metaphors, making new metaphors because there was new technology, new world was happening in front of them. Um, of course, the biggest caveat is that Koreans were very much um, suffering from the colonial and imperial forces of its time, um, whereas I feel like English poets were sort of finding their moment in the sun. So you're, you're a Korean-American. Have right. you, do you feel like there is the same kind of clashing and merging that goes on between languages? Yeah, I, I always wonder about that myself. In my case, I came here, came to the States when I was 13. And then when, even when I came here, I always spoke uh, in Korean at home with my mother. Um, mm. But then I spoke English all the time outside of my home. So uh, living in this dual world, <laughs> so to speak, in languages. Like Yisang. Yeah, Yisang, for instance, he was going back and forth in Japanese and Korean all the time, um, which is fascinating. <laughs> if you see how those guys were educated, they would have studied everything in Japanese, whereas at home they would be speaking Korean. So perhaps, um, actually, yeah, you, you bring up a good point. I, that, that, that might have influenced my love for Isang in a way. <laughs> Lizzie, what about you? Tell us about your relationship with this practice of translation. I think I'm lucky in translating Yoon Cohen in that if I were a writer in English, I would want to be her. And probably a lot of writer, a lot of translators naturally gravitate towards writers that they are, you know, stylistically similar to, or that they just feel like they connect with better. But I really, I felt like, in, I feel like in so many ways, not just in the writing, but also when I've met Yoon Kwon in person and we've interacted, there are so many similarities that we have. I remember 
when I met her last summer, she was telling me about how she likes to study in cafes, but she doesn't like to sit near the window because she's afraid that a car will veer off the road in some terrible accident and drive through the window and kill her as she's sitting at the cafe. And I think I am very similar in that I, I like to imagine terrible accidents that are completely unlikely, but I think might happen to me. But I think my relationship with the language is very different from Jack's because, you know, Korean is not one of my mother tongues. And I think that has always been why languages are appealing to me because they feel like a discovery of something that I don't know very much about and that I am always learning more about. Jack, do you find that that happens for you too, even as a native speaker? I feel like there's a way that translation kind of does show us anew, both the language that we're translating into and the, the language of the source text. I think uh, I end up entering this uh, sensation of floatiness almost. And it, it used to happen to me in the other way around where initially Korean felt more definite and then um, I had to mutate or have a mutable experience with uh, English. Um, now I feel that I've uh, sort of uh, balanced that out so that when I approach it is more or less this energy that I'm trying to transfer. Uh, one thing I keep coming back to is um, sort of a, resistance against this kind of a translation as a plugging in the right word, but more as a um, finding the source text, bringing its energy within yourself, and then bringing it out. So you're just kind of like, almost like a part of the equation, like a little machine that the energy goes through. In chapter two of the show today, we move to the secrets of the editorial world. Here's Julia with the very aptly named Kendall Story. I met Kendall Story in 2015 when she was an associate editor and publicist at Archipelago Books. Recently, she started editing for Catapult Books, where she also manages the foreign rights list. This past year, Kendall edited Lauren Euler's debut novel, Fake Accounts, and Anya Kampmann's High as the Waters Rise, translated by Anne Poston, which was a finalist for the National Book Award for Translation. When I spoke to Kendall, we brainstormed about what it would take for the publishing industry to take on more translations, and she spoke about her process as an editor. When it comes to translation, I think there's always a fear that it's not going to sell, um, and I think that can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you put the resources and energy into publishing a translation that you put into publishing a book written originally in English, I think you'll see great results. But often what happens is publishers have to decide where to put their energy and their focus. And often that energy and focus goes to the big, splashy debuts written in English, you know, et cetera. And, and, and of course, as an editor, your job is also to do things like think about how to position the book in the marketplace and get blurbs. And I do feel like with, when it comes to uh, a work in translation, I try not to just you know, take the original, if it's a German book, I try not to just take the original copy and, and translate it. I try to 
you know, position it and, and frame the book in such a way that I think will ring true for American readers. Same with, you know, I, I try to get blurbs from lots of American writers and English language writers to try to get to get people to champion it, you know, here so that so that it has the best chance of succeeding. But there are lots of things, I mean, to answer the question about what can a translator do, um, you know, I suppose coming in, you know, when, when pitching a publisher of any size, just providing as much context and material as possible. I think that the best translators are like scouts. They bring, you know, they bring not only, you know, an excellent sample translation to an editor, but also other material like a synopsis of the book, author bio, translated praise, links to reviews, um, all sorts of things that support the, the that, that make clear that the book is worth publishing. Yeah, yeah, because I was thinking about like the structure of publish or big five publishing, like it favors having agented work, which I think like translators fall in a weird space in between that. But the translator takes on some of that sales pitch work when you're taking it to a marketing department. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, translators also should know when they're pitching what the rights situation is like for the book. Occasionally I'll get a pitch from a translator and I feel so terrible because they didn't realize that the, that the rights were not available or oh no. that, yeah. and they've translated it. They're yeah, like, oh yeah. or that, you know, it had been translated already by someone else and that person had already been pitching it around. You know, I think doing your research and your due diligence is super important um, because you really don't want to devote all of that time to something when it's not possible to publish it. Yeah. So just, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's definitely a horror story. But <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the true translator nightmare. I think like on that topic, are there things that you look for in a translator in general, whether that's like stylistic or just working with them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, primarily what I look for in a translator is just a deep understanding um, not only of the author and the book that they translate, but also the context around the project and a knowledge of the author's contemporaries and influences and the country and the culture of origin. But of course, you know, what I look for most in a translator is the ability to capture the spirit of the text in English. Often great translators are also great writers. Their ability to, um, to inhabit another, you know, an author's voice and style and, and also to really make it their own as well. You know, I think I, I'm definitely allergic to the, you know, the, the idea of like literal translation. I think taking liberties is often a good thing, you know, as long as it's not too, as long as there aren't too many. And as long as, again, you're being faithful to the spirit of the text. You know, it's very challenging to, to publish um, a book from German, for example, and to use all the same punctuation. Um, you know, in English, often it, it, it doesn't it doesn't work very well. So you have to take some liberties to make sure that the reading experience in English is similar to the reading experience in German, which is to say that you don't want to challenge the reader more than the English reader more than the German reader was originally being challenged, if that makes sense. Or you want to challenge the, the, the English language reader in the way that the German language reader was challenged. I love the use of the word challenge there because like we're often thinking or translators are often thinking about like how much should I make the reader in English comfortable and like how much of that has to do with the author and the the source text and then also just 
wanting a reader to feel that they're reading a translation? I never really know what people mean when they say that it read that something reads like a translation. I guess that my first instinct would be would be that's not the experience that I want someone to have. Um, I, I want I want the the reading experience to feel very fluid, and I want the English text to feel you know. Of course, and I don't, and I don't know that there's that the distinction would be oh this this feels like it was written originally in English because of course it's not. The presence of the translator, you know, shouldn't be awkward, but it also should be there. Of course, <laughs> um, you know, there's also I think a misunderstanding about you know things that get lost in translation or you know why should I read this if I could read the original or I would rather just read the original than read something in translation. Sure, if you can read the original language go ahead and have that experience. But I think that, you know, obviously we live in a very monolingual society. Most American readers can't read in other languages. And so this is this is the way to bring those, those books to them. You know, I've had people ask me questions before, like, why should I read books in translation as if there's something kind of like ethical about it or, you know, like eating your vegetables a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think we need to, as publishers, kind of blow up this this misunderstanding about reading translation being difficult or um or or challenging and translation in itself is not a genre you know literary translation often the books that get translated are the sort of big award-winning impressive books and so occasionally they can be more challenging to read but but again you know to talk about translation as if it's its own genre is is incorrect you know, we can translate books into into English that are science fiction, and uh, you know, we just we just tend to think of the books that get translated as these you know tomes or you know something. There are lots of classic works of literature. People don't fixate on the fact that they're translated. They just think of them as these as these books that they grew up um, knowing about. And I, I I didn't really start thinking deeply about the translator or about translation until, you know, long after I had read and appreciated lots of books in translation. It's something that, you know, I think is more visible for people in our industry and less visible for the average reader. And I think that that's okay. I think that translators, the job is to, is, you know, is inherently invisible. It's like much like the job of the editor. You're behind the scenes, you're inhabiting a voice and trying to render the text in a way that honors the spirit of the, of the original. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little more about um, your experience translating the Anya Kampman book because it was a finalist for the National Book Award. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and yeah, like what what was editing that translation like? Um, where, when we talk about, you know, the behind the scenes work of editors and translators, where were you in that process? Yeah, this is the, my, the most fun story to tell. Well, so Anne Poston, who I've known for um, for many years, she's a friend, and I ran into her. Um, she was living in Berlin at the time, but she was visiting New York, and I ran into her, I think, at the Words Without Borders gala uh, after party. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. I love that after party. That's yes. a great story. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I've always really respected Anne's taste, and I think she's a really, tra- really talented translator, and so I think I, you know, I said to her that night, if there's any, if there are any projects that you're excited about that you want to talk about, please let me know. And she emailed me later and said, actually, there is something. And do you want to get dinner? 
And so we went to the now defunct Cafe Lou in the West Village and we had dinner oh. and, um, and we told me about this book that was, you know, about male intimacy and oil rigs and capitalism. And it was just this absolutely epic story that, that also for me ticked a lot of my, you know, my personal boxes, you know, just really sounded like the kind of book that I wanted to read. And she sent me the, her sample and a synopsis, I think, you know, a very detailed chapter by chapter summary of the book that same night. And I think two days later, I made an offer um, to the, to the German publisher who held the rights and, you know, they had been trying to, Anne had been trying to shop it around everywhere. And the, and I think the German publisher also made some attempts, but nobody, um, everyone turned it down for whatever reason. I mean, I think, again, we can talk all day about the challenges that go along with, you know, translators trying to place a project. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I, often I think it does come down to just finding the right reader, the right editor for it, somebody who really just mm-hmm. loves it. And, and that was definitely me. So we got right to work and, Anne I think had already translated about 50 pages of the book. So that was great. I mean, that's sort of the ideal sample size, although you rarely get something that long, which I understand because it's a lot of work to do for free. Um, so she got, she got right to work and you know, she delivered the full translation. And then my job was simply to go through and line edit the whole thing. And then we had, um, we when had, you, uh, when yeah. you talk about line editing, were you like dealing with that punctuation kind of balancing that you were talking about earlier or like what kind of like line editing do you do? Absolutely. Good question. Um, punctuation, definitely rhythm, um, you know, looking for words, you know, strange word choices or moments of awkwardness or stiltedness. I mean, I'm happy to say that Anne is a very, very talented translator. So we had very few problems, Um, but just, but just looking for anything that feels out of place. And if you don't read the original language, which most editors don't, um, it's a lot of asking questions in the margins it's, you know, it's saying, you know, can, can we talk about this section because this felt a bit off to me or didn't quite understand this? And can, you know, can you have another look at the original and see if there's, if there's a way that you can rephrase this for clarity? Um, you know, I do consider it to be really just a conversation. So it's, it is a lot of in the margins, a lot of me just asking for clarification, asking for, you know, what does this, what does this, uh, what does this word mean, really mean in German or this phrase or, Um, and, and yeah, and like reading things out loud, um, and making sure that they, that they just sound that the music of the language is preserved. Um, Anya Kampman is a poet. So, and the language of the novel is very poetic. Um, and so you just want to make sure that you find real precision in, um, in every single sentence. Um, and it was really fun, the editorial process with Anne. Um, and I hope she feels the same way because um, we got on the phone um, once I sent the edits in and we had a few sessions, if I remember correctly, of just really talking through um, all of those questions um, and, and my, my, my line edits and, you know, having conversations about like a comma, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, or, um, you know, a, one, a turn of phrase or a, a particular word. And, and throwing ideas around and really collaborating. I think it's my favorite part of the process. 
with translation um, is is really just talk, you know, thinking and talking about a book on that really micro, on that sentence level. And then at the end of it, you know, you really feel like you've rendered the book as beautifully in English as you possibly could have. And you feel really, really good about putting it out into the world, um, like you're doing the, the author justice. Translator's Note is produced by me, Abby Ryder-Huth, and by Julia Conrad. We are a production of Exchanges Journal of Literary Translation and the University of Iowa MFA Program in Literary Translation. Kendall's story, by the way, is always looking for great new work in translation. You can find out more about what she's looking for and see more about Jack and Lizzie's work as well at exchanges.uiowa.edu. Just click on Translator's Note at the top. Our theme music is by Nate Repaz, and you can see all the music we use on the show at our website. Many thanks to Aronaji and Jan Stein, as always, to Natasha Drovikova at the International Writing Program, to Dustin Quam, who got us online, and to the University of Iowa Division of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, which makes our show possible. Will Yeager is our physical trainer, and Luke Paisley is our spiritual guide. Thanks so much to all of our guests who came on the show today, and thank you so much for listening to Translator's Note. Translator's Note.